The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and gives wisdom to the simple. Let us pray. Lord, now we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For you alone, O Lord, are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start today by telling you about a discovery I made a little while ago. Uh, but to do that, I've got to give you some of the context so it'll make sense. So, I grew up in a town called Bryant, Arkansas. Now, Bryant is in the dead center of Arkansas. We, we have a plaque that says the center of Arkansas. <laughs> Actually, the plaque's not the center. The center is in a cemetery, and they wouldn't let him put it there. So it, it says it's over there. <laughs> but I grew up in Arkansas, and I grew up with my grandparents three blocks away. And this was fantastic, because as a little boy, I figured out early on, very early on, that I could go over to Nana's house anytime I wanted. I would cut through the neighbor's yards, I'd be there in a minute. Nana's house was wonderful. All right, Nana was a designer at heart, and so she had filled her house with colored glass things and china and lots of stuff that a kid could break. But I loved to be there, because when I would walk through the door, the first thing Nana would say, it didn't matter what time of day, was, what would you like to eat? And she would make for me whatever my four-year-old heart could come up with. It was wonderful. Now, in Nana's house, in the back in the corner, Pap had a study. And that study was a cool place to go. You had to kind of mind your P's and Q's when you went back there, because all of his business papers were there. But it had one of those putters that if you hit the ball right, it would shoot the ball back at you. That was pretty fun. And it had an enormous roll-top desk. And there's nothing a little boy loves more than a roll-top desk. It goes up, it goes down, it makes a big noise. When, when Pat passed away a few years ago, he left me that roll-top desk. And I remember, I remember getting it. It was at my folks' house. I went back to Arkansas to get it, and I had my boys with me, and we were looking all through it, and we were looking at all the different compartments, and I found, tucked away on the side, kind of painted in with the wood, there was a door that had a keyhole in it. And we didn't have the key, so you had to pick the lock. And when we did, you're, listen, y'all are not going to believe this, but this is 100% true. There was a bag of money inside <laughs> the secret compartment. <laughs> Pap had had some sort of yard sale or something and needed change, and so he'd put it all in there. It was a bag of money. It was great. The, the boys were so excited. In the bag of money, there were also some like foreign currency. That was kind of fun. And there was also this little tin coin with a hole stamped through the middle. And on the rim of the, of the coin, it said Pepperell. Now, here's the deal. Pepperell, you, you probably don't know. Pepperell is a town that doesn't exist anymore that was inside Opelika, which is that town right next to Auburn, Alabama. It's where my grandparents had grown up. My great-grandparents, my great-grandfathers, and my great-grandmothers had all worked for the Pepperell Mill. It was a mill town. The entire town was built around this one industry. And so part of the mill town had its own laundromat, its own grocery store, all sort of general store, all of these things. And you could use pepperal currency to buy things and to sell things there in the town. It's kind of cool. I remember I was talking with my dad about it. It was really exciting. I remember showing it to my boys who were about six and maybe three at the time and saying, this is cool. Look at this. And they, yeah. So can I like put that on a necklace or can I keep that? They didn't, they didn't care about the history. It was, they, they wanted, what, this is, okay, this is kind of neat, but what do I do with it? Pepperell doesn't exist anymore. It's not, it's not currency anymore. What, what do I do with this? I think sometimes 
when we come to the scripture, particularly when we come to the Old Testament, passages like we read today, it kind of feels like that. Here's this thing from way back when, it's kind of cool to look at, but what do I do do with it other than maybe be glad I don't have to use it anymore? You know, when I first became an Anglican, I remember one of the immense selling points to me was the amount of scripture in the service. I had sort of thought, I don't know that anyone had told me this, but I had sort of thought, if you went to a more liturgical church, they probably depended less on the scriptures, right? The more ritual, probably the less of the Bible. So then I came into an Anglican church. Well, we've got an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, a psalm, and a gospel every Sunday. And not only that, but the words of the liturgy themselves, almost all of them are taken either directly out of or in reference to passages of Scripture. And this is good, and it's right, right? What do we believe about Scripture? We believe that it is God-breathed, that it is God's Word written down for us, God communicating to us. But then I think when we get to readings like today, kind of like that coin, I think we all of a sudden find ourselves not 100% sure what to do with it. How do we as gospel-centered Christians relate to the law? If we believe, as Paul says in multiple letters, believe that salvation comes by faith, not by keeping the law, then what do we do with Psalms like Psalm 19 that are entirely about the beauty of the law? Is it just like that coin, something to look at? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That feels like pretty strong language for, gee, I'm glad I don't have to use this anymore. Well, if you're you're asking that question, if you're curious about what am I supposed to do with this, I have good news. That seems to be one of the main things that Paul is trying to communicate in his letter to the Romans. See, here's what's happened is Paul is writing to a community that's in Rome, a Christian community. He hasn't actually met them yet. But they are a mixture of, of Jews who have converted to the faith, and then what we call God-fearers. Now, let me explain what a God-fearer is. A God-fearer is a Gentile who has begun to draw near to the Jewish faith. The Jews were not an evangelistic religion. Their, their goal wasn't to go out and make converts, right? But sometimes just the reading of the Word of God itself draws people. And so we find throughout the scriptures, we find these people that are identified as God-fearers. You think about Cornelius is this way, the centurion, right? Uh, You think about uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, you think about Lydia, all of them are called God-fearers. They're Gentiles who aren't Jewish, they haven't converted all the way, but they've heard the scriptures and they've begun to draw near. They're trying to understand more about the wisdom of the God of Israel. But now, you see, they, they have a problem. And this seems to be Paul's primary concern in the letter. You see, they have drawn near to God, drawn near to the Scriptures, and then they've learned through that about the Messiah. But now they've begun to follow the Messiah, and now it's, well, I only know about the Messiah because of the Scriptures, but then it sounds like the Messiah frees me from the burden of the law. So, what, so is this in, does this not count anymore? Is it, is it undone? God, I heard you over here. And yet now I see you in the risen Christ. Is this still your voice? Are these still your words? And that becomes the question. And in the early church, we know that there were different voices proposing different kinds of answers to that question. There was a group that seems to have irritatingly followed Paul around wherever he went. And as soon as he left a town, he left Corinth, he left Ephesus, what would they say? They'd come in and they'd say, listen, Paul is great. We like Paul. Um, He went a little far about the law. You still need to be Jewish for the Jewish Messiah to save you. 
If you really want to be in the good with God, you've got to keep the law, right? Remember, this is the letter to Galatians. It's all about this. This group has come in and said, if you want God to like you, you've got to obey the law. There's another group that seems to have come in on the complete opposite side of it that would say, no, 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 no. Jesus has saved us from all of that. It doesn't matter what you do. Do whatever you want. You don't have the law anymore. There was a preacher in the early church named Marcion. This is where we get, we have a term, a technical term now called Marcionism comes from him. He said, you know, I've been reading the old Testament and the God of the old Testament, he's a bad guy. He's mean. He's, he's vindictive and he's wanting to trap us under the law. Jesus came to save us from that God. Maybe some of you grew up with a sort of mild, kind of watered-down version of this. No, we're not like, we're not committing heresy. We're not saying that God is two different people. But, you know, there's the New Testament, and then the Old Testament is sort of, eh, whatever. We'll keep it over there. So these people that Paul is writing to are trapped right in the middle of this pull, this back and forth. What are we to do? Well, we know that, like I said, we know that at least the one is wrong. It can't be that extreme version that we call Marcionism. You know why? It can't be that God had a plan A and then it didn't work and now we have plan B because we have these Psalms. And if, the, if, it, if that's the case, then the Psalm is a lie because the Psalm says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. But if the law of the Lord was a failed plan, then it's not perfect. It's not reviving anything. Jesus also doesn't let us off the hook. What does he say in Matthew 5, 17? He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so the question becomes for us, all right, what does it mean for the law to be fulfilled? For Paul, this question, what does it mean? What is the law doing is of absolute importance. Paul, in coming to know the gospel, has come to understand the saving work of Christ, not as one in a long line of different and maybe competing attempts to rescue humanity, to put things to rights, nor as a kind of finishing touch for those who have done a good job. Here, I'm going to help you past the finish line, but you almost made it on your own. Rather, Paul has come to know the saving work of Christ as one continuous from the beginning, the thing God has been doing the whole time, revelation of God's saving love. And so we have in Romans Paul's attempt to lay out succinctly what it is that God has been doing from the beginning. And what I'd like to do is take the next few moments to help you to see the logic of that argument. Paul, one commentator says, Paul, in writing Romans, it's like he's, he's creating a symphony, right? And it has, it has these themes, like any symphony, it has these themes that get introduced at different points in the music, right? And then at the crescendo in chapter 7, where it's all coming together in a climax, all of those themes come back into play. And Romans 7 becomes his last, his sort of final restatement. This is where we're at before he begins to, begins to describe to them how to understand where they are in Christ Jesus. This is where we are at. This is what Jesus does. So we're going to go back. We're going to bounce all through Romans today. We're going to look at those themes so that we can understand what he's doing here in this passage. Okay. So chapter one. You thought I was kidding. 
Romans begins in a kind of chaos. It begins in a kind of disharmony, a kind of discord. And if you're like me and you grew up in the church, this is the only part of Romans you remember because this has got all the bad stuff, right? This is where Paul says, listen, look, the world is a mess. It's full of envy and strife and murder and evil. He says, everything is falling apart. But Paul's not just complaining. He has a purpose in bringing this up. There's, he's saying there's something broken There's a problem here. The world, like I said in verse 29, is filled with evil and covetousness and malice and murder. And you know, Paul's not out on his own here. This isn't something that, this isn't Paul being original. This is actually Paul launching into what's a very standard Jewish critique of the nations. Not just a Jewish critique. It's actually a really standard critique from anyone about the state of the world at this time. The philosophers, the pagans, the Jews, all of them are looking around and saying, something is wrong. Something's broken in the world. Sometimes people will talk about the problem of evil. That's what this is, right? How can, a, how can there be children that are suffering if there's a good God, right? People will talk about that as if that's a problem for religion. But that actually gets it backwards. There's, there is a, uh, Stephen Prothrow is an agnostic. He's a sort of a secular academic scholar of religion. And he points out every religion starts with the problem of evil, That's why we care about these questions at all. What is it that's gone wrong? It implies, if I ask that, if I say something's gone wrong, that means there's a way that things ought to have gone. The only reason that it matters to me that there's suffering is because I think there shouldn't be suffering. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, The Problem of Pain. Pain would be no problem unless side by side with our daily experience of this painful world, We had received what we think a good assurance that ultimate reality is righteous and loving. If that weren't the case, we wouldn't be surprised by chaos at all. We wouldn't be surprised by suffering at all. And so the question we ought to be asking that Paul is prompting at the beginning of Romans is how have we gotten here? What's the reason that things have gotten off the track? And so Paul gives them an answer in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were hardened. Over and over again throughout chapter 1, Paul is going to say, because of this, therefore, because of these things, and every time he's pointing back to this phrase, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Now, the youth and I are going through the book of Proverbs on Sunday nights, right? And at the very beginning of Proverbs, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's all about learning wisdom. At the very beginning, the teacher says, if you want to learn wisdom, there's a beginning. Do you remember? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now that, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, that's, that's a short way of saying the same thing that Paul is saying here, honoring God and giving thanks to him. If you want to know how to operate rightly in the world, you have to begin by knowing who you are before God. If you miss that part, then everything else falls apart. And the rest of the litany that follows in chapter 1 comes as a consequence, Paul says, of humanity's failure to acknowledge God. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. All of these things proceed from not being in right relationship with God. You, brought, you bought a Ferrari and you took it off-roading. 
You went to the store and you bought a book and you sat in a dark room without a light and you tried to read it. Nothing works the way it's supposed to because you've gotten this first thing out of order. Like I said, this would have been a really standard critique of the nations by any Jew of Paul's day. This is what's gone wrong with all of them. Look at them. They don't, they don't have a right relationship with God, and that's why the world's falling apart. But then Paul takes this standard critique, and he flips it on its head. Because then what does he do in chapter 2? He turns to his Jewish readers, and he says, You who have the law... You who are striving to keep the commandments are doing exactly the same things. He says, you tell people not to covet, and yet you're coveting. You say not to commit murder, and yet you're committing murder. You say not to rob from temples, and yet look what you're doing. What he's pointing out is, you also are sinning. And if we've said the root of sin, the root of this chaos is not being in right relationship with God, then when you do these things, what does that mean? You also are not in right relationship with God. If sin proceeds from not having a right relationship with God, then when those who are under the law sin, they're revealing that they too are broken in this regard. Do you see how that would be a really shocking claim to a Jewish audience? There's a reason Paul got kicked out of synagogues wherever he went. This is not a popular idea. The law, with its sacrifices and its rights, cannot actually put you in right relationship with God. But here's the thing. That's exactly what the prophets said. If you think about Isaiah 1.11, what makes you think, I want your sacrifices, says the Lord. I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened calves. Hosea 6.6, for I desire steadfast love, says the Lord, and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The answer to the problem that we were talking about earlier, how have things gone wrong in the world, how do we fix it, is deeper down than the law can go. It's underneath it. It has to do with your heart. As we read on Ash Wednesday from the prophet Joel, if you want me to deliver you, rend your heart and not your garments. Your hearts are dead, says the prophet Ezekiel. You need new ones. But now this this is beginning to feel like a back and forth, right? It's, it's like a tennis ball at Wimbledon or something. You, back and forth, the law is good and holy and pure. The law cannot put you in right relationship with God. Well, then what is it for? Why did God give us the law at all? Paul says the argument he's been making throughout this letter is that the law came so that you would know sin. It's a diagnostic tool. What does he say in verse 13? He said, did that which is good then bring death to me? We read this just a minute ago, right? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. The law didn't come as a plan A for making you righteous. The law came because you are sick with a mystery illness You have no idea what it is. It's eating you alive from the inside. And the law comes to say, here it is. If you've ever had someone, if you've ever known someone who struggled with an illness that they, that wasn't diagnosed, you know, the relief that can come just from a diagnosis. Oh, this is what's killing me. 
Another example, I, many of you know I trained as a marriage therapist before becoming a priest. A lot of times when a couple comes in, when we're first starting to work through what's going on in their lives, one of the first things that I have to do is get them to understand the pattern of their relationship. And here's what I mean. Couples, when they come in, are fully convinced that the problem in their relationship is the other person, right? And this, we're in the South, so people are nice. So we come in and we say, well, let's, I mean, we've both got our own burden of the blame. You know, my 10%, his 90%, right? That's, and listen, I don't fault them for that. All they can see is the other person's behavior. And so all they can make use to make sense of what's going on is, listen, you're, you've got to try harder. I don't know why you keep hurting me. The thing we begin to do then is to talk about, we talk about it as a dance. We say, listen, this is the dance that y'all are in. And it's taken on a life of its own. At this point, once we've crossed a certain threshold of pain, it does not matter what the other person does. It will always be perceived as a threat. It will always hurt, right? And listen, the nicer you are, the more suspicious I get. It was more covert. You're laughing, but it's true, right? It's taken on a life of its own. It's overcoming you and it's killing your relationship. And oftentimes for couples, that first moment of connection is just them looking at each other and saying, oh, you hate it here too. You're also suffering in the midst of this. The law comes not to change our hearts by dictating our behavior, by telling us to work harder, to do better, but to give us a frame within which sin can be known as sin. Oh, that's what I'm doing. And heaven help me because I can't seem to stop it. We're all like those couples. We know what we want to stop doing, but we're still doing it. How many of you, maybe even personally, have, have resolved, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be le less self-centered. Then you get a little down the way and you find that self-centeredness has just come in through the back door. So I'm doing the, the very thing I don't want to do. I'm still doing it. I never do a good thing. Listen, this is, on, this is a confession. I never do a good thing without some voice in the back of my mind saying, I'm going to look like a pretty good guy doing this, right? What about, what about even on a global scale, on a larger scale, in our communities or our societies, we see a problem, we say, I'm going to go fix that. You remember there was that book that came out a while back called When Helping Hurts? right? All of our motivation to try to fix things. I once had a dear friend, a woman who lived internationally. She was living in the midst of a community that was just, uh, just completely overcome with poverty. She thought, hey, I, if I could get these women, if I could organize them, we could begin to advocate. We could generate some revenue. We could, we could really lift this town out of the poverty. And so she did. And it was beautiful. For a few years there, it really worked well. She was doing a great thing. But then one day someone came in and said, hey, you're really controlling and you're manipulative and you're using these women to make yourself feel better. And like that, it was gone. She was out. It all fell apart. And I remember as she was struggling through what happened here, one of the things she had to contend with is, you know, there were moments where I really was being manipulative. There were moments I thought I was doing a good thing, but I really was trying to control. It'd be so easy if we could just color these things as black and white. This person's clearly in the wrong. This person's clearly right. But our motivations are way too complicated for that. If we look at ourselves honestly, we realize that we don't ever do a good thing without some part of us wanting to go the other way. 
Paul says in Galatians, in a very similar line of argument, that the law is given to us as a tutor, as a schoolmaster, to help me to realize that the answer to the question, what is the problem, how did things go wrong, is that our lives have become entrapped by a kind of evil that has taken on a life of its own. Evil, by the way, here with a capital E. As Paul goes through Romans and he talks about sin, sin increasingly takes on these active verbs. You have an enemy and he has enslaved you. What does he say in verse 21 of what we read today? So I find it to be a law. One biblical scholar points out, this is mathematical language. Paul has drawn a line across the paper. He said, here are my findings concerning this whole conversation about the law. Whenever I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war. And I am a prisoner of war. He says, I am captive to the law of sin. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the state that we're in. He says, this is my finding. But, I mentioned at the very beginning, we talked about how is it that things have gone wrong? We said the issue is one of relationship. We have failed in our relationship with God, and because we have fallen in this primary respect, all the rest of our lives are being thrown out of joint. Everything trickles down from there. Well, the good news is that that implication works the other way, too. Like I said, the law is a tool, and for those who are apart from God, it rightly measures our distance from God. It shows us, oh, I, I'm not there. But if our relationship with God were to change, then our relationship with the law, its function in our lives would also change. If Christ, through his death and resurrection, has changed our identity from those who are apart from God to those who are children of God, then the law no longer functions to measure our distance from God. Christ says, I've put my very spirit, my soul into you the Spirit of God inside of you. What does Ezekiel say? I will take your dead heart and I will give you a new one that's alive. There isn't a distance between you and God. God's not measuring it out and saying, here, come on, catch up. Instead, the law takes on a new function. It becomes instead for us a guide towards fullness. Let me leave you with an illustration that I think helps this make sense. Imagine that you're going on a trip to visit friends. Now, listen, when you go on a trip to visit friends, unless they're close friends, unless y'all are basically family, as soon as you arrive at their house, if you're a good guest, you're going to be looking for what are the unspoken rules so that I can be a good guest, right? How does, what does this family do with their shoes? What are, when are mealtimes? The question I'm always asking is, who makes the coffee in the morning? And do you have coffee or do I need to go buy some, right? And all of these rules serve to re-emphasize. Part of what they do is they re-emphasize to me that I am not part of the family. I am a guest here. And guests have certain expectations. I was staying at an Airbnb a while back, and I went in, and this woman apparently had had enough of it. She had covered her house in uh, blue painter's tape that she had written notes on, one egg per guest, do not touch, owner's property, bathroom is open between 9 a.m. and 10 p.m. for showers. It was all over the place. I'll be honest, I didn't feel particularly welcome there. (laughs) The rules re-emphasize to you the distance. But now, think about how those same rules change if you are not a guest 
but you belong to the family if you are a child. For a guest, the rules are a kind of index of welcome. Some of them maybe even reinforce the boundary before, between the family and the guest. You know, Forrest, I love you, buddy. If you come into my room at 3 a.m. because you had a nightmare, you're not getting invited back. <laughs> but when you're a child, those rules function differently. You belong in the home. You are part of the family. And because you are part of the family, the rules are not given as a kind of measure of whether or not you get to be in the family, but as an expectation of how you will grow. Right? What, what rule is there in a good home that a child could break that would render them not part of the family? Now listen, you and I, we, we what does Christ say? You parents who are evil, right? We... We've known a lot of broken homes, but everything good about parenting, we get as an image of God. And God is saying, listen, you are my child. You're mine. It's like I tell my children, right? Listen, you will always be my little boy, my little girl. It doesn't matter what you do. That doesn't mean there aren't rules. There are rules, but the rules are there for your growth. They're not there as an index of your welcome. They're there as a measure of your growth. We're going to get better at this, buddy. You had a rough day today. Tomorrow is a new day, right? It's continually before you for you to grow into. Paul says in Romans 8, having brought all of these themes back together, he says that those who are in Christ are beyond condemnation. Being given the spirit of Christ, he says in verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And if we are sons and daughters of God, then we belong in the home. And the rules of the home do not measure our welcome, but provide us with a path for growing. The law becomes for us, as we said in the psalm today, light for our eyes and life for our souls. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.